The scripture reading today is from Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. When he went out again about noon and about three o'clock, he did the same. And about five o'clock, he went out and found others standing around, and he said to them, why are you standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. When those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received the usual daily wage. Now when the first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received the usual daily wage. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. Good morning. It's such a joy to be able to join the City Church community today and to be a small part of your good and faithful work in the world. Thank you for inviting me to your worship. As we continue in this time, I invite you to pray with me. O oh Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I read an article recently about day laborers in Chicago. Every day, these workers wait for work, even though it's never a guarantee. It's sometimes dangerous, and it's barely enough to live on. There's one worker named Gustavo Almaraz. He's 28 years old, and he explains he won't work for less than $15 an hour. But other surveys indicate that laborers often earn minimum wages or less, sometimes nothing. He says nobody can live on less than $100 a day. Many of them, this article tells us, also have to contend with the question of their citizenship status. Although some of them have papers to show they are legal residents in the U.S., many of the men don't have that status. Often, though, the contractors, contractors who hire the men off the street corner automatically think you don't have papers, explains another worker. And that's a problem because they want to take advantage of you, he says. Finally, there's the issue of the employers themselves. Says Almaraz, some of the people here doing the hiring are mean. And so the secret is knowing when to walk away from someone who abuses you. Another worker explains, I had a good paying job with an electrician, but then the boss started to become disrespectful. 
he started to yell and insult me. So in the end, this worker says, it's all about finding a good boss and somebody who needs you for a long time. The system of day laborers is very familiar and it was actually common in the time of Jesus's telling of this parable. But the parable of the laborers in the vineyard is actually unique to the gospel of Matthew. New Testament scholar Emerson Powery explains that the stories that surround this parable were consecutive stories in the gospel of Mark. Matthew's inclusion of this parable interrupts that narrative flow. So right before this text, we have Jesus blessing the children, saying that it is to such as these that the kingdom of heaven belongs. And then we have the encounter with the rich young man who asks, what good deed must I do to have uh, eternal life? And then finally, we have Peter saying, we have left everything and followed you. That's in chapter 19. On the other side of this parable, we have the mother of James and John asking Jesus to declare that these two sons of mine will sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And of course, that doesn't go over very well with the other disciples. In Matthew's narrative context, then, Jesus's parable seems to be a story directly connected to discipleship issues, possessions, and authority. His placement is significant, and he's giving us a way to think about what does it mean to be a part of Jesus's ministry? When the work has low returns and thankless jobs, and then exhaustion and comparison creep into our communities, how do we keep on doing this work together? So Jesus's words here, this parable, it seems pretty ordinary and normal, like really relatable work and labor. We all have some experience with it, albeit in varying degrees. But not only is this topic appropriate in the context of when Jesus spoke these words, but actually for that burgeoning community, trying to figure out where they fit in society and in God's, in God's larger story as they listen to Matthew's testimony. So our text today is found in the fifth of the major narrative discourses in which Jesus hammers home one last time with the disciples that he is ushering in a kingdom of heaven that is radically different from any other governance or power they have known up to this point. Says one Columbia Seminary professor, more than any other gospel, Matthew underlines the ways in which Jesus not only represents divine power and presence, but democratizes this power and the responsibilities that come with it in ministry with his disciples. And we see this, uh, especially in the earlier chapters of Matthew, when Jesus actually sends his disciples out with that power. So we get a glimpse of the experiences of a community who are working to integrate lots of different ethnic groups, but especially the Jewish and Gentile, by creating a new framework for living that was not grounded in ethnic identity and those differences, but ethics, a moral way of living. We also see too a community who struggled to reconcile their roots and rituals with this new reality that they're following this redeemer. But then they're also having to adjust their expectations of this redeemer, a savior who didn't overthrow empires and kingdoms, but one who did establish a new rule. In this text today, then, we get a very real glimpse of a community who are struggling to reorient themselves around 
a new system of fairness and equity and relating to one another. So there's also actually an urgency in Matthew at this point. Jesus has already been transfigured before them. He continues with his uh, miraculous healings. But much of the discourse um, we find are instructions for life together. The kinds of things you might leave uh, your spouse uh, with your spouse or family, like if you're going out of town for a business obligation or a trip with friends, honey, don't forget to take out the trash on Tuesday and the kids have a field trip on Thursday. So we need to pack lunches and don't forget soccer practice on Wednesday night, that kind of a thing. At this point, he has foretold his death twice now, and will do so again right after this text. And then in chapter 21, we have the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, signaling that he is taking the road to Golgotha. He is on his way out. So the parable today is one way Jesus instructs them about their behavior towards one another. But more than that, the reminder that they have a responsibility to care for one another. So the Gospel of Matthew and, and why I gravitate towards it over and over um, is about responsibility, not to uphold and maintain tradition for the sake of tradition and identity or even authority, but about delineating who is on the in and more about who is on uh, the outside. It's less about delineating who is on the in and more about who is on the outside and our responsibility to uphold that. So Matthew even opens with this very meaningful genealogy um, in chapter one, we know, beginning with Abraham, ending with Jesus. But just before naming Jesus, he does something unusual by naming a woman, Mary, the mother of Jesus. So already we see at the beginning of Matthew, the genealogy, the family tree as they understand it, is breaking open. So Jesus' concern in Matthew is about responsibility for one another. And he explains this through that breaking open the kingdom of heaven, and that it is, yes, utterly concerned with Israel, but it is about shaping and helping them to look and see where he has his eyes, which is always on those who are on the margins, on the periphery, on the outside. And so that includes women, Gentiles, tax collectors, fishermen, sex workers, children, these are the ones who receive his blessings, his teachings, his healings, and more. These are the ones who engage him, who follow him, who work for him, who, dare I say, are the exemplars, the ones who show what it means to be in community with Jesus, to uphold that responsibility. But most importantly, we see who are recipients of God's grace. So Jesus tells this parable the story. And it's easy to track with him. A landowner goes out to get day workers early in the morning, then again later in the morning at nine, then at noon and midday at three, and then towards the end of the workday at five. He must have had a lot of work. To the first group, he promises the usual daily wage. And the rest of the group, he says he will pay the others whatever is right. But Jesus gives us a little twist in the plot. At the end of the day, each worker receives a full day's wage. Of course, the early workers complain. They've been treated unfairly. It's really not difficult, right, to empathize with those early workers. 
from an early age, we have all ingrained in us a, a notion of what's fair, what's just, what's right. I witness it every day with our own children as they are quick to keep track of all manner of things. They have these little ledgers in, the, in their brains and they are meticulous about how much screen time each child gets each day, how many bags of chips, how many slices of apples or pears, how much allowance for their chores. If I find myself even a smidge off, one of them will be quick to remind me, it's not fair. I folded all my laundry. It's not fair. I fed all the animals. It's not fair. I did all my homework. It's not fair. They're getting more TV time. It's not fair. These last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. It's not fair. The landowner responds, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I'm generous? Oof. Few things put us in our place than someone who is grounded in themselves and unafraid to wield their power and agency. But this landowner justifies his authority by explaining how he chooses to be generous. But what exactly makes this landowner generous then? I mean, is it really any skin off his back that he gave each worker the same amount of wages at the end of the day? I wonder sometimes whether we have domesticated generosity tempered it and diffused it with our own modern day notions, which tend to tie um, generosity to excess. We sometimes give out of our surplus what's left over, what's unnecessary to us, clothes that are too small, kitchenware that isn't used anymore, furniture that has gone out of style or doesn't fit our tastes. There are the various pledge drives that happen at the end of the year that try to appeal to our generosity through a reminder of certain tax benefits. Get those donations in so you can claim them on your return in April. Or sometimes if you donate, you get your name called out on a local public radio station and maybe an awesome tote bag. I do love a good tote bag though. New Testament scholar Powery again does offer that the parable is really not about the laborers in the vineyard. In fact, this is not even a story about the growth of the vineyard nor was there any significant attention on the activities of the workers. You know, we hear the complaints of those who have toiled all day long, but the story was not really about them either. Rather, Jesus's parable highlights the generosity of God. As the ultimate landowner, God will use what has always belonged to the creator for the good of all, even if humans fail to view the world through God's eyes. In other words, the story is about the kind of generosity that doesn't really fit into our categories of fairness. It doesn't fit our formulas. It doesn't fit our metrics. It doesn't fit our math. It isn't one-to-one. -one. It's part of the same kind of logic that says things like the first shall be last and the last shall be first. But this radical generosity isn't meant to be solely limited to the landowner. It's meant to inspire in us one a gratitude that we've been given what we need for the day to survive another day. 
And two, a new perspective on the work of generosity, because we all have a part in it. Take what belongs to you and go. What will you do with what you've been given? There's a story about Mother Teresa, obviously one of the few in the world that truly exemplifies and embodies this kind of generosity. And the story goes, in an impoverished village, every day one member of every family would line up with a single bucket, patiently waiting their turn to have their religious sisters fill their bucket with dry grains of rice. A novice was shadowing Mother Teresa as she methodically greeted each person and filled each bucket. Before long, an elderly woman reached the front of the line and to the novice's surprise, had in her possession two buckets. Mother Teresa greeted her by name and proceeded to fill one bucket. After thanking Mother Teresa, the woman turned to leave, stopping a short distance later to empty half of her full bucket into the second empty bucket. The novice, miserable to be witness to the extent of the hunger and inequity around them, turned to, the, turned to Mother Teresa and asked, why did we not fill up both buckets for that poor elderly woman? Mother Teresa replied, there's only enough rice for each family to receive one bucket each day. She has her neighbor's bucket and her own. Her neighbors are very ill and no one from the family could come to collect the rice. She's emptying half of her family's share into her neighbor's bucket to bring to them because she cannot carry more. Overwhelmed with sorrow, the novice demanded, surely we should have filled both buckets and we could have taken the second bucket to the sick family for her. Mother Teresa stopped what she was doing, looked at the novice and said, these are among the poorest and most destitute people you will ever meet. Never take away the right of another person to be generous. The serious business of heaven is a work of joyfully choosing to be generous in a way that defies the world's expectations. And all of us have the capacity to give and care in this way. And that's a plot twist in this parable, that God's generosity doesn't simply end with God's gifts to us. It is one that is meant to animate us, to give us life and breath, to give us dignity, to give us the ability to discern with others, guided by the spirit in every situation, how to do the work of forgiveness, restoration, and wholeness. Jesus knew the disciples would need to rely on each other. We might call it accountability, but I think it's, again, more like responsibility or response ability, an ability to respond, the capacity and call to speak into, to give guidance, to shine light, to inspire hope, to love and offer grace. This is a glimpse of the world that Matthew gives us through the stories of Jesus's ministry. I'll end with this one last. I love how Imani Perry says it too. She says, I want to live in a world in which we have a kind of deep witnessing for the least of these, in the space for the kind of care and love for the least of these, not out of charity, but out of an understanding that that's at the core of what it means to be fully human and to aspire to the beloved community. Now, Imani Perry is a historian, and she goes on to say, 
I identify myself as a social as, as a socialist, as an anti-colonialist, as someone who's also a Marxian. All of those are metaphors for me for moving toward a society and a world that is loving at its core, that sees love as an ethic that is more than just sentimental, but is really about relations of power and what kind of social relations we produce and pursue. We all have a responsibility to participate in these various relationships. That's the serious business of heaven. The serious business of heaven is love and all of us are called to its work all the time. Let us pray. Gracious God, you call us to so much, to a certain kind of responsibility, one of compassion, one of presence, and not only a commitment to one another, but to the work of responding in joy and love to one another, because you've given us that ability and capacity. We know that you also call us to generosity. So help us to be glad recipients first of your generosity, of your reconciliation and work of healing and wholeness, and lead us and guide us to share, to show, to work for the dignity of all showing up over and over with the love of God, with food, with books, with tools, with bread, with flowers, with our whole selves. And as we do, grant us your peace, hope, and joy as we seek to do your will and your good work in the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.